0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with David Brooks. This program originally aired in 2015. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHBR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with David Brooks, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Brooks is a columnist for The New York Times and a best-selling author of several books. He's known as the liberal's favorite conservative and serves as sparring partner to Mark Shields on PBS and to E.J. Dion on NPR. New York Magazine once described Brooks' role in American life as public intellectual slash punching bag. Others have called him worse. Here's Brooks' own assessment. In his new book, The Road to Character, he writes that he is paid to be a narcissistic blowhard and has to work harder than most people to avoid a life of smug superficiality. He casts The Road to Character as his own search for something deeper, something beyond the career accomplishments that one lists on a resume. In fact, he tells readers that he wrote it to save my soul. David Brooks stepped out in front of the live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to talk about The Road to Character.
1: It's a pleasure to be here in New Hampshire a little early for me. I usually start coming for politics season. Uh, usually starting in a couple months from now, uh, every four years. Um, it's a pleasure to be here when the weather is so nice. Uh, this, is, this is my most personal book and it's about a life that took unexpected turns and my life is filled with unexpected turns. I started out, I grew up in uh, Greenwich Village in New York, uh, somewhat on the left. Uh, my parents in 1965 took me to a bee-in where hippies would go just to bee. Uh One of the things they did was they they set the garbage can on fire and threw their wallets into it to demonstrate the liberation from money and material things. Uh, and I was a five-dollar bill. I, I saw a five-dollar bill uh, on fire there, so I broke from the crowd, reached into the fire, grabbed the money, and ran away. And that was sort of my first step over to the right. Um, and then, little did I know, it make me a, eventually a conservative columnist at the New York Times, a job I right, likened to being the chief rabbi at Mecca. uh... Not, not a lot of company Um, um, but then I I, uh, decided actually at age seven that life took another turn um, decided I wanted to become a writer I was reading Paddington the Bear uh, and I I said I want to do that and so all my life pretty much from that moment I've known what I want to do I remember in high school I wanted to date a woman named Bernice she wanted to date some other guy and I remember thinking what is she thinking I write way better than that guy So she had different values. It wouldn't have worked. Um, then I went to Chicago, which is a, a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, and then life took its various twists and turns. And some of them are just um, unexpected. And some of them are sort of transcendent. Uh, and so I... Uh, I was driving home, from, I do a show called The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, uh, with a guy named Mark Shields, who's from around here, not too far away. Uh, our segment is called Shields and Brooks, we wanted to call it Brooks Shields, that would have been better, but, um, um, but so I do this show, and I, on summer times, I come home at around 7.20 p.m., and about 10 years ago, the, the, um, I drive home, and I drive into my then house in a place called Bethesda, Maryland, and I pull into my driveway, which goes around the side of the house. And I just see it in the backyard, and my kids, who were then like 12, 9, and 4, happen to be out there, and they've got one of those balls you get at the supermarket, and they're kicking it up in the air, and it's curving in the wind, and they're tumbling all over each other, and they're laughing, and they're joyous, and like the weather's perfect, the evening sun is coming through the trees, the grass is superbly green, and they're just frolicking, just joyfully, and so I pull into this house. Uh, And and I just stare at them through the windshield for a few moments. Uh, And it's one of those moments when life and times get suspended, just this unexpected thing. And reality spills outside its boundaries, and you get a feeling of being overwhelmed with gratitude. Like, what did I do deserve this? Uh, And it's a beauty you haven't earned. And so when you have that uh, kind of just happy, transcendent moment Uh, First, it it plows through hard ground, it opens you up a little, gives you a glimpse of a higher joy, higher than anything you can get in your career, and it gives you a strange stirring to be worthy of those moments. And suddenly moments like that can give you that kind of feel. And so the way I started thinking about it uh, was the distinction between two sets of virtues. One, what you might call the resume virtues and what you might call the eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues are the stuff you bring to the marketplace. Are you good at teacher, lawyer, journalist, whatever it is? The eulogy virtues are the things that are deeper, um, what they say about you after you're dead. Are you courageous, brave, honorable, capable of great love? And we all know the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues. But we live in a society that spends a lot more time thinking about the resume virtues. We live in a school system, an educational system that emphasizes those more. And so a lot of people, including myself, have gone for large parts of life with more clarity on how to build a good career than how to build a deep inner character. And a book that illuminated this for me was a book called Lonely Man of Faith written by Joseph Soloveitchik uh, in 1965. And Soloveitchik argues that there are two opposing sides of our nature which he calls Adam 1 and Adam 2. And Adam 1 is basically the resume Adam. It's the career-oriented, external, ambitious side of our nature wants to create, produce, and discover things and there's nothing wrong with Adam one we should be ambitious and creative Adam two is the internal Adam Adam two wants to embody certain moral qualities have a strong inner character solid sense of right and wrong not only to do good but to be good Adam one wants to conquer the world Adam two wants to obey a calling and serve the world Adam one is good at getting achieving how to get to the top Adam two is in charge of defining what your purpose is, what your life is supposed to be all about, your ultimate end. And sometimes Adam one and Adam two work together. You wanna bring your moral nature to your job and vice versa. But sometimes Soloveitchik argues there's confrontation between the two. And I'd say that confrontation can sometimes happen because uh, they operate by different logics. Adam one operates by economic logic, the external market logic which is straightforward. Input leads to output, effort leads to reward, practice makes perfect. Adam too operates by a moral logic, which is filled with inversions and paradoxes. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. Failure can lead to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. And so, as I say, we happen to live in a culture that emphasizes Adam-1. We live in a competitive culture, so you've got to spend a lot of time on your career. We live in a culture of fast communications, which makes it harder to hear the quiet, still voice that comes from inside. We live in a culture where we tell ourselves how wonderful we are all the time, and it's hard to generate the humility that Adam-2 requires. We have lived for I think for the past 50 or 60 years with a culture that says you have a little golden in figure inside and you are good inside. You are just so good. You listen to the commencement cliches, follow your passion, be true to yourself, trust yourself. We tell our kids how great they are all the time and, and they believed us. And so one of the people I wrote about is Dwight Eisenhower. When Eisenhower was nine he punched a tree in his front yard because he, his mom told him he couldn't go out trick-or-treating and he threw a temper tantrum and just punched it, and he rubbed all the skin off his fingers. Uh, And his mom was this remarkable woman named Ida Eisenhower, sent him up to his room and had him cry for an hour, and then she came up to him and recited a verse from Proverbs, which is that he who conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh a city. And six years later, when Eisenhower wrote his memoirs, he said that was the most important conversation of his life because it taught him that he had a weakness in himself was his temper. And he had to spend his life combating that. And so what Ida taught her son was two things. First, the virtue of humility. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's radical self-awareness from a distance. It's being able to see yourself, seeing what's good about you and seeing what's weak about you. And second, it's the ability to confront yourself and identify your core sin and figure out ways to beat it and become stronger than you used to be. And Eisenhower spent the rest of his life, more or less, doing that. He, uh, we think of him as this garrulous country club guy, but that was a persona. Deep down, uh, he was angry and a hater. He spent the nights of World War II in the presidency lying awake, insomnia, anxiety attacks, drinking a lot, throat infections, spiking blood pressure. But he knew he couldn't lead that way. He had to be optimistic and confident. So he created a persona, and he defeated the hatred in himself. Some of the things he did were silly. He took the names of people he hated and wrote them down in a, a piece of paper, and then he'd rip them up. And he became strong in his weakest spot with a great temperament. Thomas Merton wrote that souls are like athletes. They need opponents worthy of them if they are to be tried and extended and pushed to the full extent of their powers. And Eisenhower did that by confronting himself. The two more people I'll mention. One is from around here. Frances Perkins. She went to Mount Holyoke. Mount Holyoke had different rules in those days than most colleges do today. Here are some rules for the Mount Holyoke class of 1902. Freshmen should keep a respectful silence in the presence of sophomores. Freshmen meeting a sophomore on campus should bow respectfully. No freshman shall wear a long skirt or hair high on head before the mid-year examinations. But the second thing Holyoke did was they worked on the character of their students. Perkins was weakest in chemistry, so they made her major in chemistry. Figuring if you can tackle your weakest thing, you'll tackle whatever life throws at you. It also gave them incredibly heroic aspirations. They took young women, 1902, and the slogan was, go where no one wants to go, do what no one wants to do. They sent them off to Nepal, to Pakistan, to Tibet, to Africa on these mission trips. Lone women all over the world in 1902. Somebody did a survey of female missionaries abroad in like 1920. 25% 25% of them were Holyoke grants. Perkins didn't go abroad. She went to Chicago, worked at a place called Hull House, then sort of drifted from job to job, looking for really a vocation. Doing good work, but not really focused. She's having tea in Washington Square Park in lower Manhattan in New York in 1913, and she hears a commotion. So she rushes out from that house she's in, looks across Washington Square, and sees a fire. She stumbled across one of the most famous fires in American history, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. She sees what she thinks are bundles of clothing being thrown out of the 10th floor window. But it's like 9-11, instead of uh, burning to death, people are choosing to jump to their deaths. And she sees 53 people go over. There's a guy helping the seamstresses across the windowsill and then dropping them. A first, a second, a third, a fourth, his girlfriend who he kisses, drops her and then he goes over. She sees this, and that is what you might call her call within the call. She had sort of a vocation to do good work as an activist, but at that moment, all other ambitions were quieted, herself was quieted, and she became an instrument in the cause of worker safety. She would work with anybody, she would compromise anything to get things moving forward, and she turned herself into that instrument, and she kept that long obedience in the same direction for the next 50 or 60 years. She goes up to Albany. Uh, she's a lobbyist for worker safety legislation but no one will take her seriously because she's a young woman and but she she keeps a folder at home called notes on the male mind (laughs) and she says well they won't take me seriously as a young woman but they all want to be loved by their mothers so she says I'll remind them of their mothers she dresses like an 80 year old woman frumpy gray dress pearls, tricorner hat, old-fashioned hairstyle, gets the nickname Mama Perkins and becomes an awesome lobbyist passes major piece of legislation then goes to work for Franklin Roosevelt Secretary of Labor first women in the cabinet and the godmother of the New Deal Social Security and really leads an awesome life and so she is the uh, she's an example of how you choose a vocation we tell college students find your passion look inside yourself well studies have been done 80% of college graduates don't have a passion and what Perkins discovers you don't look inside yourself, you look at the world. It's not what do I want from life, it's what is life asking of me to do. What problem do the circumstance present that I that needs solution that I can solve? And so it's an external source of vocation, not internal. And so the last person I'll mention was a guy named Augustine, famous theologian, fourth century. He had a mom named Monica, who was the helicopter mom to beat all helicopter moms. And so she was like surrounding him, telling him what to do every second, who to marry, who not to marry, what to think, what not to think, what career to go into, what career not to go into. He wants to get away, so he gets on a boat, heads for Italy from Africa. She's on the shore screaming at him. She gets on the next boat, (laughs) tracks him down. And this goes on for decades, conflict. Finally, at the end of her life, he's had his conversion, which he writes about in the Confessions. She's 56 and she goes up to him one day and says, you know, all I wanted all my life was you to be a certain sort of man and a certain sort of Catholic and you've become that. So I'm ready to go. My work here is done. And she does die nine days later. And he describes their final conversation which he describes their voices mingling sweetly. We came to our own minds and went beyond them into the realm of pure spirit and there's this sweet they're talking about the past and the future. And he's got a long sentence. And the sentence is hard to understand but it repeats a certain word. And the word is hushed. So he says, the sound of the trees was hushed. The sound of the wind was hushed. The sound of the birds was hushed. The sound of our voices was hushed. The sound of our hearts was hushed. And you get a sense of this moment of tranquility. And just gratitude for each other. And Adam 1's ambitions are never satisfied. There's always something out there. But Adam 2's ambitions, were, which are achieved with other people against yourself, ends up in this tranquility and this gratitude. So everybody seems to embrace you and cheer you on, and you radiate with this glow. And the people in the book had it by the end. And I hope most of us will get a taste of it at some point in life. Thanks.
0: New York Times columnist and author David Brooks there, talking about some of the people he profiles in The Road to Character. After a short break, I'll sit down with David Brooks and ask him about the struggle between our higher and lower natures, his concept of sin, and whether one can be a good person and a good pundit. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more Writers on a New England Stage with David Brooks on this special edition of Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Today, best-selling author, political commentator, and op-ed columnist David Brooks. Although a favorite among liberals, Brooks' advocacy for traditional views of morality, marriage, and other social norms make him a champion among conservatives as well. His book, The Road to Character, sets out a bipartisan challenge. Brooks' charges that our culture has been overtaken by competition to succeed so fierce that it's become all-consuming. He admits his own natural disposition to shallowness and argues that we need humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation to build character and discover a deeper purpose for our lives. He admits his own natural disposition to shallowness and argues that we need humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation to build character and discover a deeper purpose for our lives. I sat down with David Brooks to talk and take questions submitted by the live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. We spoke the week after The Road to Character hit number one on the New York Times bestsellers list for nonfiction. A wonderful book, but a book that really messed me up, (laughs) I have to say. I mean, a lot of questions about whether the insides match the outsides, and am I responding to my calling, and am I demonstrating character? and I wonder about for you. Did it mess you up to write this
1: book? Uh, Well, writing it, uh, you know, I wasn't in the the, um, middle of some moral crisis. I wasn't like flat on my back in some midlife crisis. Uh, I would have just bought the car if I was. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we, we all do have a responsibility to get a little better every day. And so my life has been so blessed, I just wanted to, you know, try to get better and better. And uh, as I sort of indicated, I really had um, achieved way more career success than I ever thought. And it's the fundamental truth. It's like the fundamental mythology of our society that success will lead to fulfillment and it just is not true. Uh, And um, the things that matter are the things that matter. And even now, it was mentioned earlier, the book was number one on the times list. And my publisher called me like a week and a half ago to tell me and to be honest, I felt like nothing. I just felt nothing. Hmm. Uh, I, was like, oh. I understand
0: the New York Times is a really reputable paper.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> we do cook the books on this. Um, no, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Not true. Uh, <laughs>
0: so what do you think was there for you? Why nothing?
1: Because it's like a number. Hmm. I mean, I'm going to get a nicer car, let's face it, but no. Uh, <laughs> but it's just like what, what matters is like, it's true, like we know what leads to happiness. Um, Money is not related. Once you make above $85,000 a year, there's really no correlation. Um, Age is somewhat related to happiness. People in their 20s are happy. Then people begin to dip down, and they hit their bottom happiness on average at age 47, which is called having teenage children. Uh, But then the 10 years after retirement are the happiest. But the the main thing that's related to happiness is relationships. Uh, joining a a club that meets just once a month is equal to the same happiness gain as making $150,000 a year more. Mm -hmm. And so it's just relationships that make you happy, and then I think having a relationship to the sacred. And I do think we put too much emphasis on happiness, and whether you're religious or secular, we should put more emphasis on holiness. And, And whether you're religious or secular, holiness is struggling towards some purpose that's transcendent, and to which you're willing to suffer. And the suffering is part of the holiness. But you're willing to sacrifice some happiness for a greater purpose. And those people are the ones who are are truly joyous.
0: Well, you're talking about holiness in a way that a lot of people may not be used to. And in the similar way, you use the word sin specifically in the book. Um, I read somewhere that somebody in the publishing industry advised you against this. Is that true?
1: Yeah. I I was on Charlie Rose, and I used the word sin in the interview. And he said, don't use the word sin. It's too off-putting. Use insensitive.
0: But, so, but you stuck with it anyway. Why? Why yeah. that concept of sin, which is so fraught with, you know, religious weight or historic weight, Yeah,
1: and so I understand why we got rid of the word sin, because a lot of people thought it meant we were depraved human beings, especially in New England, frankly, in the Puritans. Um, yeah. A lot of people use sin um, to crack down on sex and deny anybody any pleasure they might be having. Um, and so it was used by a lot of sm- self-righteous, smug people, and so the word went out of fashion. And now we use it in the context mostly of fattening desserts. Uh, but, but I think it's a, it, uh, there are certain words that you... It's really hard to have a moral conversation unless you use these words. And soul, virtue, sin is one of them. And what I, like the, I like the word sin first because it reminds us that life is a moral drama. It's not just success or failure. There are moral stakes in that when you make virtuous decisions, good decisions, you're turning a core piece of yourself into something stronger. And when you make bad self-indulgent decisions, you turn a core piece in yourself into something weaker. The second thing I like about sin is it's collective. Weakness is individual. We have individual weaknesses, but we all have the same sins, and they overlap. Selfishness, self-centeredness, whatever, need for love, whatever. Uh, And so it reminds us that we're doing it all together. And so I think it's necessary to recover a moral vocabulary that has been lost while stripping it of some of the negative associations.
0: Well, it has been so intertwined with faith or religious doctrine. So so how do we have conversations about morality, about virtue, for the non-believers, for the atheists, for the agnostics, without being preachy?
1: Yeah, well, so I think that's essential. I mean, first I observe that I know many wonderful people who are religious, And I know many wonderful people who are atheists. So I do not believe you need faith to be good. Uh, I just observe both kinds. But I do think you need to have a moral vocabulary and you need to be able to talk about what's going on inside. And a lot of the words that have moral associations or religious associations can be used in a secular way. So, for example, grace. For religious people, grace means the unmerited love of God. For secular people, it can mean You're being treated better than you deserve. Some crisis happens in your life and your friends lift you up and they treat you better than you deserve. You've loved better than you deserved and it's useful to have that concept. The word sin, for example, my favorite definition of sin is disordered love. So we all love a lot of things and but we all know that some loves are higher than others. We know that our love for the truth should be higher than our love for money. But some people lie to get money and we know they've done something wrong, that's sin. If a friend tells you a, um, a, 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 a secret and you blab it at a dinner party so you can be interesting, you're putting your love of popularity above your love of friendship. And we all know that's wrong. And so that's what sin is. You, don't, you can be have faithful and have a concept of sin, you can be secular and have that concept of sin, but you should have some concept of it.
0: Mm-hmm. So hard to do, to avoid that little sin, to slip in, to open that door, to not try and be the most important or interesting person at a dinner party. I mean, your job is all about being the guy that everybody turns to for the soundbite, for the pithy comment. Um, Not a very easy job to be humble in, is it?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think the most um, agreed-upon sentence in my book uh, is that I write a sentence that I'm paid to be a narcissistic blowhard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that I'm, I'm paid to volley my opinions out there, uh, seem smarter than I really am, seem better than I really am. And so the job is a great encourager towards smugness. Mm-hmm. And, but every job has, has, some, has some character challenge. Uh, if you're a salesman, you're always out there pitching. You're not always the most honest person, maybe. You're sliding the truth. If you're a politician, you're talking about yourself all the time. And everything's about me, me, me. Uh, and so every job has its character challenges and columnist has more character challenges than many because it just feeds the smugness. Um, but you, as long as you're aware of them and, and struggle against it. And so like I tell my students that my students think there, there are two sorts of careers. The noble but poor Teach for America career will lead to mom and dad's couch for the rest of their life. And then the the, um, the sellout careers of banking and consulting. Yeah. And I say, you know, I know heroes and schmucks in both worlds. It's, it's a matter of how you lead your life, not necessarily what career you go into.
0: Right. Yes, it's a small d democratic opportunity, this process of building character. Yeah. But what is to motivate somebody, you know, um, what urges a person to consider a calling and character if they haven't even met their basic needs? I mean, you're a really successful man. Right. You're a worldly man.
1: Yeah, so one, the other thing I observe is that The world is filled with very poor people who are desperate to have lives of meaning. And the churches, mosques, and synagogues around the world are filled with these people. And when you go to wherever you can go in the developing world, they may have very little and be living on a dollar or two a day. But they, like everybody else, is born with moral imagination an aspiration to lead a life of meaning and purpose. And they don't feel good Just like a rich person or a poor person, we don't feel good unless we feel our life has some meaning and some goodness and we're contributing to some virtue in some way. And so I think it's just innate in our nature and I think it does not have anything to do with uh, income. I don't think it has anything to do with age. My students are 18, 19, 20, 21. And as one of them said to me, we're so hungry. We're so hungry. They, They don't have a moral vocabulary, which they know but they want to lead a life where they know what their purpose is, and they want it to be something that transcends themselves.
0: You talked a little bit about Frances Perkins' education at Mount Holyoke College, and that she was belittled, she was brought low in some sense. And, and you use a term a couple of times in the book about the self or the ego being broken on the rack. You know, this is, this is torture, this is really hard work, is that necessary? Must we sink to the absolute basement of the soul to get better?
1: Well, at least like the mezzanine. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I do think they have a, um, uh, a sort of, there's a U-shaped curve. There's people are humbled by something that happens to them. And then they, they, in that moment at the bottom comes recognition. And then this urge to turn that suffering into something good. And, you know, I, occasionally I'll, a student will ask me, you know, should I go out and seek suffering? It's like, no, don't worry, it will happen. <laughs> and so you do not have to seek it. But just when it happens, turn it into a moral occasion. Uh,
0: Humility will find you.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, sometimes you want, you know, I want to tell my students, you know, don't take my advice so literally. So, like, I was talking to some of them. I gave a commencement at a school called Swanee, University of the South, which happened to have been the second richest school in America mm-hmm. at one point. Unfortunately, the year was 1861. <laughs> um, and... and um, so I said, you know, I, I gave the discussion of Viktor Frankl, this great psychologist mm-hmm. who, um, who, it's a little of the Francis Perkins story. He was a psychologist in Austria. He gets sent to a concentration camp. And so he says, uh, you know, this wasn't what I was asking of life, but I was presented with this problem of suffering mm-hmm. and, and pain and agony, people in the worst circumstance. I'm a psychologist. I might as well study this. So he wrote a book, a great book called Man's Search for Meaning, a very short, beautiful book. Um, about how you find your purpose by looking at society. And what does the world need? And where does my deepest gladness meet the world's deepest need? And so I got an email a couple of weeks later from a, a young woman who said, you know, I quit my job, I'm walking around the streets of Washington DC looking for the world's deepest need. I'm like, don't take me that literally. Uh, but, but I think the truth is basically that right.
0: Well. It- It's interesting you bring that up. We've got a number of questions here about what's going on in Baltimore. You know, as people are watching the riots in Baltimore, as I was reading this book, watching the same thing um, after Ferguson, after New York City, Staten Island, you know, big questions about a moral compass and self-destruction. And, you know, we know these stories. We've heard these stories before of families and friends done wrong by the criminal justice system, um but it ends up in this limited thinking um, or, or, or let's say a perception of limited possibility in the world, right? So how do you talk about character to somebody who is living in concentrated poverty and just doesn't see another way out?
1: Yeah. So there, you know, I started my career as a police reporter in neighborhoods in Chicago that were very much like the Sandtown neighborhood in Baltimore. And I guess I would, I, I would emphasize one thing. It's very hard to do it alone. Uh, that those of us who were fortunate enough to be born into middle class life or in organized neighborhoods, we had at every step of the, our our lives little social signals on how to behave and how not to behave. And they're just steering you with little bursts of, of approval. Do this, don't do that. Go to school, do your homework. And a lot of these neighborhoods, because of the disorganization, because of the lack of economic opportunity, because of the stress, because of drugs, a whole range of reasons, Those little signals are not being silent. If you listen to hip hop music, the common phrase is, I was raised by the streets. Mm -hmm. And if you're raised by the streets, you're not getting those signals. And it's so phenomenally hard to orient yourself alone without all those signals. And it's phenomenally hard, by the way, to be a cop. Uh, There was a good interview which reminded me of my police uh, reporting by uh, David Simon, the guy who did The Wire and set Mm -hmm. on the streets of Baltimore. And he said there used to be a certain code of what curse words you could say to a cop and he wouldn't throw you in jail and then what curse words you could you could say and so there was a code of how to treat somebody and the cops had little codes and these were informal codes governing behavior he said now those codes are all gone and so it's all moral anarchy and so the cops don't know how to deal with the people they're dealing with and so i guess they get caught up in the savagery of the moment and they put this guy in the back of the van, cuff him and ride him around, so he's bouncing around back there. And so all human decency has been dripped away. When the codes go, people devolve. And so a lot of it is when we confront sins, when we're confronting our weaknesses, when we're orienting our lives, we're so much dependent on the little signal sent by each other, and we're so much dependent on each other.
0: I couldn't help but thinking of uh, what you wrote about Samuel Johnson who said, you know, this young, misshapen boy acting out in school, saying that uh, he got in a lot of trouble, he was punished. Um, He said, bitterness they mistook for frolic. You know, his own sense of bitterness that was causing him to do these things. And I'm wondering about the interior character there.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, especially in the case of poverty, it's so important to, we have to think about economics, that's for sure. We have to think about giving people jobs, giving people money. But in the case of Baltimore, you know, we spend on average about fourteen thousand dollars per person in poverty. We spend fifteen thousand additional per student at school, so there's some money there. What we don't—I think—we're only just beginning to focus on is first psychology, uh, and then social relationships, the quality of relationships. So they have this thing called the ACE test, the Adverse Childhood Experience test, and if you grow up in a home where you've experienced moving around a lot, switching schools a lot, uh, some abuse some drug use in the home, your wiring is just different. You perceive threat differently, your sense of attachment to adults is different, and these these can all be fixed with mentors and school programs and things, but your psychological framework is different. And then the social psychology around you is different. And so we have to, to my mind, we have to focus on the money, we have to to focus on the soft and squishy stuff uh, itself.
0: Well, there are a number of cases of people who promote or or enact or really live social change in the profiles in the book, among them Baird Rustin. Um, One of the realizations uh, that you write that he comes to is you you can't reduce ill will in the world unless you can do it in yourself. Um, Tell us a little bit more about him, a man so undisciplined in his own sexual life but required to be extremely disciplined in the exercise and Really, propagation of the nonviolent protest movement.
1: Yeah. So he was a. Uh, he grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania. He was a gay black man, very smart, very talented, very charismatic, and was being groomed to be the American Gandhi. He was a, a pacifist, uh, and and he was doing incredibly brave civil rights stuff in the in the forties. Basically, he decided not to serve in World War II. He decided to serve in jail instead, as an act of protest against war. And he at every jail he was in, every prison he was in. If there was a white part of the dining hall, he would sit there. Uh, If there was a white part of the bus, he would sit there, and they would beat him, and he'd break his jaw, and he would just sit there and accept it. And in many ways, he was so heroic. But he was also very vain and a bit egotistical and very um, unkind to his boyfriends. And a lot of betrayal, a lot of uh, sleeping around, his boyfriends objecting, he eventually gets arrested uh, for uh, vice charges, and this is you know, being gay in Pasadena, California in the 1950s. And forever after, he can no longer be the American Gandhi. He can't be out front because of the vice charges and other things. And so he has to go in the background. And so this very egotistical man has to realize, if I'm gonna serve the cause of civil rights, I've gotta be in the background. And so he serves Martin Luther King as author and advisor he serves Philip Randolph, the great civil rights leader. He organizes the March on Washington, and he, it's a, he conquers his own vanity, his own ego, and eventually discovers a way to have stable relationships with his boyfriends. Uh, and so it's, a, it's again a story of someone who was out of control, greatly talented, remained greatly talented, but got himself constant and integrated and self-serving.
0: And he was sort of pushed out of the limelight. George Eliot, as you mentioned, pulled herself out, you know, made this choice to join her lover, George Lewis. Um, I found it so interesting that you, David Brooks, were suggesting that somebody push themselves and always keep a foot in the counterculture, not something I might have suspected of you.
1: <laughs> well, it depends on the counterculture you're defining. <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 our traditional version of counterculture is the 60s and the hippies and, and uh, you know, tie-dye and Woodstock, and I did that when I was eight, so I'm done with that. Uh, but the, I think the real counterculture now is a counterculture that steps aside what I think is this culture of, of narcissism, the culture of the selfie, and is a little more reticent, uh, but basically hues uh, to this belief in what Immanuel Kant called uh, the crooked timber school. Kant wrote that out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was made. And so if the mainstream culture tells us how wonderful we are, celebrate ourselves, love yourself, follow your desires, which is what consumer society tells us to do, the crooked timber school says, distrust yourself, conquer yourself, be suspicious of your desires, and self-confrontation, and self-defeat, it's a different, it's a bridging, it's a different philosophy, and to me that's the real counterculture.
0: Well, there's a, in the book you talk about, or actually it's very, right at the beginning, that something that triggered your search Um, beside that picture you painted earlier of you sitting outside in your driveway looking at your family, of hearing a command performance from just after the Japanese surrendered in August of 1945. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, what you heard.
1: Yeah, so all life-transforming experiences have to do with NPR at some (laughs) level. We know Um, that. So I'm uh, listening to um, my local NPR show when I was living in Washington, um, and on Sunday nights, they rebroadcast old radio shows. And I heard this show called Command Performance, which was a variety show that went out to the troops in World War II. And it was the VJ Day episode, just hours after. And Bing Crosby, who's the host, gets out there on stage and he says, We've just learned we've won this war. I guess we don't feel too proud. We just feel humbled. We're just glad we got through it. And I was struck by the tone of humility. A couple minutes later, Burgess Meredith, this character actor, gets out there and reads a passage from Ernie Pyle, the war correspondent. And he writes, we won this work because we're brave allies. We happen to have a lot of material abundance. We didn't win it because we're better than anybody else. We're not God's chosen people. We should just stay modest and be worthy of the peace. And this was just a beautiful tone throughout the whole program. Then I get it. I finish listening to it in my driveway. I go inside, turn on TV, watch a football game, see a quarterback throw a pass to a wide receiver. He's tackled after a two-yard gain. And the defensive player does what all professional athletes do after moments of supreme achievement. He does a victory dance in honor of himself. And so it occurred to me I'd seen a bigger self-puffing victory dance after a two-yard gain than I'd heard after winning World War II. <laughs> and this symbolized for me a shift from a culture of self-effacement that says I'm nobody better than anybody else but nobody's better than me to a culture of distinction. Look what I've achieved. Look at me. Look at me. And that set off a whole train of thinking in my mind.
0: Because American exceptionalism is so strong in our culture, how do we teach self-esteem? How do we teach somebody to be celebrating something, especially a child, without all of the self-aggrandizement?
1: Yeah. Well, I guess first on the American exceptionalism, it's worth noticing that the phrase often associated with we're a shining city on the hill. Mm -hmm. When it was originally used, I think by John Winthrop, it was not, not, not Ronald Reagan. Well, he used it later, but it was interesting because when Winthrop used it, he used it to mean we're, shiny, we're up there on the hill, everyone's looking at us, and we're failing. He meant it was, a, it was a Jeremiah. it was a criticism. By the time Reagan uses it, we're on the hill, we're better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So like a 180 degree difference in the two usage of that. And so how you teach this humility, uh, I, I don't think you teach it by lectures, unfortunately. You teach it with people. And that's why I have profiles. I don't think we learn from abstractions and sermons, though they can help, but we learn from each other. And so hopefully we all have people in our own lives who are, who are exemplars of humility. I, I, I had a guy in my life, I did this show which I mentioned called the News Hour of Jim Lehrer. And so when Lehrer's face was on the screen, uh, it was very mm-hmm. stoic. He didn't really express. He wasn't like, you know, morning Joe or whatever. Um, but when I'm talking, he he was expressive. And naturally, off camera, he was a very expressive person. And if I would say something stupid or self-aggrandizing, I'd see his mouth curl down in displeasure. And if I said something he liked, his eyes would crinkle in a little joy. And so for 10 years talking to him, I like, tried to avoid the mouth turning down and tried to get there. And he never said anything to me about this. But these little gestures is the way he communicated how you should behave. And that's what mentors do. That was an instruction to me. And so we do, we, if you're a teacher, you do that with your students. They don't remember what you teach them, but they remember how you are, the totality of your experience. Mm-hmm. If you're a parent, it's like that. If you're a friend, it's like that. And I think, and the reason why I hope the book is useful, the dead can also teach us. The dead leave us the gift of their lives, and we can learn from them
0: question from the audience. You spoke about the necessity of humility. I wonder if you might comment on how so many public figures today seem to lack humility. Yeah.
1: Um, well, they're, they're, as I said, they're, their job is to make themselves their product. Um, and I, they have what I call loggery dementia. They talk so much, they derive themselves insane. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they, you know, they're surrounded by people who love them and they're surrounded by people who are making their career off of them and they just go in and deliver bursts of love and they get they want the love back they want to be most people a lot of people who go into the profession they just need to be the center of attention in every room they enter and so it's even if they start out normal which most of them do most politicians are good people but they're in a rotten system that rewards self-promotion punishes people who want to stay in the background and what gets lost and this is what i notice in a lot of cases is hopefully we all have an internal voice. Like we all have to say stuff for our jobs that we just have to say, but hopefully there's an honest internal voice, knowing who you are, knowing what's right and what's wrong. John, uh, there was a guy named John Hay who served with Lincoln in the White House. And Hay was issuing during the Civil War these um, publicity newspaper articles. And it was all about, we're winning the war, it's going great, General Meade, he's a brilliant general. He was also writing a diary at the same time and the diary was like, oh, we're losing General Meade. What an idiot. And so like, it's totally the opposite. But you've got to be able to keep that internal voice. And I find a lot of the politicians, somehow that's been hollowed out. They've begun to believe their own propaganda so that external voice is all they got.
0: But it's not just politicians, as you make the point that we are all managing our own brands now. We're all broadcasting this exuberant version of ourselves to the rest of the world. So, so what does this encourage in us? We become these kind of approval-seeking machines.
1: Yeah, well, I think, I think that's... I mean, it's natural to want to be loved. It's natural you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram to want to get liked. Uh, and I'm not against being on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Um, but I, I'm just asking for uh, people and myself, too, to say, okay, I, I get pleasure out of this. I get pleasure. I'm on stage. The lights are on. Mm-hmm. But what, what's the threat here? And how can I try not to be turned into the sort of you know, self-puffing person that I don't want to be. And when I talk about those ladies in Frederick, they're not doing, they, you know, they're not affected. They're probably on Facebook, but they've got a beautiful joy and holiness to them. And that's, you know, that's what you want.
0: Question here, are you really a conservative? Say it ain't so.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> It is sadly true. Um, I I used to be on the left, as I mentioned, but, uh, you know, I grew up. It all stops with that $5 bill. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
0: okay, so you're talking about big, huge goals, you know, humility, self-confrontation, pursuing a life of integrity, trying to be a better person. Now, How do you live that day to day to day? I mean, reading a book like this inspires it, but how do you keep it alive?
1: Yeah, so um, a couple things. And again, I'm not saying, I believe me, writing this book has not made me Mr. Saint. Um, I think, one, it's, I found it useful to have a spiritual book going at all times. Some book that lifts you out of the day-to-day events and gets your mind focused up there. Uh, two, I found journaling is useful for people. I was a little suspicious. Maybe it makes you self-indulgent. But I think those moments of writing, facing yourself squarely, Third, I have a friend whose sin uh, is hardness of heart. He's a very busy guy and people are always coming to him with the problems, but he's thinking, oh, what's my next appointment? Or he's in a meeting thinking, well, instead of really listening to other people, he's thinking what he can say that'll make him look clever. And so he lies in bed each night and he thinks, well, how'd I do today on this hardness of heart problem? Yeah. And so he said, tomorrow I'll try to do a little better. And so I think it's, it's that sort of thing. Uh, and then I do think it's useful to gather with friends and try to have a, you know, a discussion group, whether it's a book club or some other discussion group or just a dinner group, where you try to talk about some of these things. Uh, how do you get a vocation? Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do we work within institutions? How much of our own lives do we control? How do you find a purpose in life? And having those conversations is itself illuminating. And it's all about finding things to love, finding a cause to love, finding a thing to commit to. And how do you commit to things? That's actually a big problem for a lot of us, especially for my students. They have FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't, they're afraid if they commit to one thing, they'll sacrifice something else. But life is about, you know, you gotta have an open mind, but the purpose of an open mind is to close on something. And they have trouble closing, We a lot of us do.
0: Right. You said you wrote this book to save your soul. Where are, how's your soul doing,
1: David Brooks? <laughs> it's like, it's C-minus. Uh, no, I, I teach at Yale, 63% of the grades are A, so I, by that standard. Uh, um, you know, I, it's, I would say being around these characters has been inspiring for me. Because they're like now my friends, they're like in the back of my head. You know, Francis Perkins, Dorothy Day, who I haven't mentioned, who's a just transfixing figure. They're like influences in there. And so that's nice. I, I went to Monticello a couple of weeks ago, Jefferson's home. He had portraits of all his heroes on the wall, and they were like looking down on him. How you doing today, TJ? You know, you're doing okay? Uh, and so I would say that's been at least uplifting. At least I'm paying attention to the right things more, a little more. And as for being a better person, I'm not sure I... I'm still usually capable of doing Sins of Omission. Uh, and. Things I should have done better, and especially on this tour, people come up to you sometimes with something really meaningful, mm-hmm. and it's hard to be present, hard to be there. I'm, I think I'm a little better in that. I was used to be not the sort of person anybody was confiding in because I was on the move, and now at least they're confiding in me. I don't always know what to say, but um, my friends and other people are more likely to confide in me. I, hopefully, I'm sending off a, a gentler vibe, <laughs> uh, and so. Uh, you know. So, if anybody wants to tell me about their love lives, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. <laughs> this
0: book could end up in the self help section. Would you be okay with that? Yeah.
1: Well, I guess I think all books are self help books. Um, they, you should be about improvement. It's only a problem if I come to you and say, I've got seven steps to make you a saint. It's like, <laughs> if I do that, that's not going to work. Uh, but if I say, Here are 10 or 11 people who are really amazing, you might learn something from, and it's up to you to choose what to learn. If that's self help, I'm fine with that. Mm. Well,
0: David Brooks, before I thank you, so many other people to thank for this production today. Writers on a New England stage is executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch, the producer and communications director, Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president, Betsy Gardella. Our broadcast producer for today, Logan Shannon. And our digital producer, Sarah Plourd. Music Hall production manager, Jana Morris. Music Hall live sound and recording engineer, Rachel Newbar and Jason Martin. The musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnoughts. And the live stage photography today from Clear Eye Photo. And you can find that online in just a couple of days. Please do join me in thanking David Brooks for joining us today. David Brooks there, author of The Road to Character, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. You can see photos from the event and listen to more author interviews from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I know you got boo!